Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm incredibly excited today because we have a first here on ACRAC. We are going to have our first live debate. And so we're going to be talking about the concept of combined spinal epidurals versus just regular epidurals. And to have this debate, I'm welcoming to the show a, uh, be- a, someone who's become a frequent visitor who you all know and love, Dr. Mike Hoffkamp. <laughs> who's Director of Obstetric Anesthesia at the Scott & White Medical Center at Temple and Clinical Associate Professor of Anesthesiology at the Texas A&M Health Science Center College of Medicine. And for the first time, I'm excited to welcome to the show Dr. Jacqueline Galvin, who is an Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at the University of Illinois at Chicago and and the Obstetric Anesthesia Fellowship Director also at the University of Illinois at Chicago. So Mike and Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you. Me too. All right. So let's jump right in. This is going to be an exciting topic, and I can't wait to hear uh, how you guys debate it. So, Jacqueline, why don't we start with you? Remember, you know, we've got some people out there who are at a more basic level. So let's just start very basic and say, what is a combined spinal epidural? So start by telling me that, and then tell me how it's different from a regular epidural. Great. Thank you um, very much, Jed, for this opportunity and CSE is my technique of choice that I'm highly biased towards, so I'll begin with explaining how it works. Um, so I'll assume that most people are familiar with accessing the lumbar epidural space by way of loss of resistance technique. Um, so once a person is in the epidural space with their TUI needle or needle of choice, um, the typical way to puncture the dura is a needle-through-needle technique. So a very small bore, typically 27 or 25 gauge spinal needle, is introduced through the TUI, which is still in the epidural space. That spinal needle punctures the dura on purpose to get the definitive endpoint of CSF. Once you're in that CSF, you generally inject a low dose opioid um, and local anesthetic to start your anesthetic, um, typically for labor analgesia. And then the spinal needle is removed. Uh, epidural needle is threaded into the epidural space. Uh, theoretically, your epidural needle hasn't moved. And then you can maintain analgesia or start surgical anesthesia with that catheter. So really accessing the epidural space through the spinal needle, through a needle 
the, through, you know, through the, you know, technique is how it's different than a traditional epidural, which doesn't involve any puncture of the dura um, unless it's an accident. All right. So with this technique, you're taking your epidural to it. You're putting it just where you would anyway for a regular epidural, but you're putting Correct. a needle through it, puncturing the Correct. dura, injecting yes. something into the intrathecal space, and yes. then taking that needle out and then threading your catheter through the TUI just as you would uh, if you were doing a regular epidural. That's correct. Great. All right. So, Mike, you are on the opposing side. You're taking the side of of regular epidurals are better. So how is a regular epidural better? Well, first, let me tell you about a story. So 10 years ago this July, I was starting my CA3 year at Hopkins and we had a, an elective rotation at a private community hospital in Baltimore. And I went there, and these were very slick private practitioners. And they did CSEs for all their labor analgesics. And they taught me how to do it. And I thought it was the best thing in the world. In fact, I brought back to Hopkins when I was at the main hospital. I was at Bayview. I insisted upon doing CSEs for every single, single labor analgesic I had my hands on. There are some attendants that wouldn't let me do it, but most of them would. So I did this throughout my entire CA3 year until April when I was at Bayview. And I had a woman who I had done a CSE on come back with a postural puncture headache. It was a true postural puncture headache. And the only anesthetic intervention she had during hospitalization was my simple CSE. That got me thinking, maybe my CSE technique isn't, wasn't as good as I thought. And so my basic position about epidurals versus CSEs is that there are no real gains or marginal gains at best with CSEs, and there are only risks with CSEs that, in my opinion, are unnecessary. And so let's talk about no real gains. So my studies come from meta-analysis. Meta-analysis, obviously, taking lots of different studies, pulling the data, trying to make some really big, broad-based, generalized conclusions. And so uh, the author, Heeson et al., showed no differences in rates of epidural replacement, epidural top-up, or epidural vein cannulation. Simmons et al., with a Cochrane database study, which I believe is the gold standard of evidence-based medicine, showed no differences in the mobilization of labor, uh, no, need f- no differences in the need for labor augmentation, the rate of cesarean birth, the incidence of posterior puncture headache, maternal hypotension, neonatal APGAR scores, or umbilical artery pH. So there really isn't any difference when you look at the Cochrane database between epidurals and CSEs for these things. Now, there are some marginal gains of CSE. I will give you that. Heeson et al. showed a relative risk of unilateral block was decreased somewhat. The relative risk was 0.48. And so Jacqueline will talk about this uh, a little bit later, but there you do make a hole in the dura that might facilitate spread of medicine from the epidural space to the intrathecal space that might explain the uh, decreased incidence of unilateral block. Simmons et al. in the Cochrane database did show that the CSC was a little bit quicker for the speed of onset of analgesia. It was 2.87 minutes quicker. The need for rescue analgesia was lower. The urinary retention rate was a little bit lower. And instrument delivery with CSE was just a little bit lower. And with a CSE versus a low-dose epidural, not the standard-dose epidural, but if a low-dose epidural, you're really trying to spare the, the motor function, 
there is a faster onset of effective analgesia. So I have to give the CSEs that. But the meta-analysis, the two studies I, I quoted, um, the Cochrane database one and the Houston one, the, both authors, when looking at all the data, they came to the conclusion that the CSE technique does not offer any significant benefits over regular epidural. So let's talk about the dark side, I call it, of combined spinal epidurals. Let's talk about fetal bradycardia. So there was a study by a French guy named Mardirasov that showed that um, there was a significant increase in fetal bradycardia, and the odds ratio was 1.8. And the puritis from intrathecal opioids is off the charts. The relative risk is about 30. So these women are going to itch, and remember the Cochrane database, they're going to have no real benefit. Uh, the, the good thing about the bradycardia, though, is that the C-section risk was not increased. So you do see some episodic bradycardia, but it doesn't increase the C-sections. So let's talk also about the dark side of CSEs with fetal heart rate abnormalities. And so what happens is that when you do the CSE, you're going to get an increase in uterine basal tone. And this can result in urine hypertonus. And the urine hypertonus facilitates fetal heart rate abnormalities. And uterine tone is a predictor to influence fetal heart rate abnormalities. The bottom line with this study um, that was published in Obstetrics and Gynecology was that the faster the pain relief, the higher the probability of urine hypertonus in fetal heart rate changes. And so another problem with CSEs is that you are exposing yourself to the risk of meningitis. There are uh, many case reports in the literature talking about meningitis with dural punctures, and there was one in 2014 that showed meningitis after spinal for a C-section. Now, I'll admit that the incidence is close to zero, but it is not exactly zero. And again, we're talking about incurring this risk for really not that much gain. And I will postulate that the sterility in the labor and delivery room does not even approach that of an operating room. You're going to puncture somebody's dura in a labor and delivery room electively for not that much gain? I don't know. And I guess I also have a couple of observations that I don't have hard evidence, but I do want to share. So again, what I talked about before, the postural puncture headache rate is close to zero, but not zero. I saw it once in my hands as a resident. I am sure there are other patients that I've done CSEs on who have come back, and I have no idea that they've come back, but they probably have. Another observation I've made is that when I put the CSE dose in initially, it is an intense, awesome spinal analgesic that will last for about two hours, and then it wears off. And then if the patient's in a 12-hour labor, four hours into labor after the, the uh, spinal dose, they say, what happened to my spinal dose? I want my spinal dose back. And I actually saw Bernbach at a sushi bar one time at a meeting, and I cornered him, and I asked him about this point, and he did not refute it. He admitted that this is a weakness of CSEs, that you're going to get a really good analgesic dose at the spinal that's going to be very, very difficult to replace, uh, for, particularly for primips undergoing longer labors. The other thing is that the CSE kits require more equipment and they add more expense. I don't have specific numbers because a lot of these kits 
are done by proprietary contracts that are really kind of confidential. But it's it's just logical to postulate that these kits are going to require more cost. And like I said before, the Cochrane database, the meta-analysis, they don't show much benefit. So you're adding more cost for dubious, if, none, if no benefit, and that is not consistent with our value-based proposition in healthcare that we're going to. So that's all I got for my initial go-around for pro-epidural. All right, Mike, that was great. Thank you. I, before we move on, I just have a couple, one quick question. So it sounds like you know a lot of the data that you've cited really didn't show, especially these meta-analyses, didn't show a real benefit to CSEs over epidurals. And so the one question I have is, with these meta-analyses, did they look at similar doses of the epidural? So you could imagine that you could have an epidural with no bolus dose or an epidural with a 10cc bolus dose of quarter percent bupivacaine, and those are going to act very differently. Uh, so did they control for that in these meta-analyses? That's that's a great question. They it's it's it is a heterogeneous uh, heterogeneous uh, population that they studied. Uh, each of those meta analysis had a dozen or more studies that they pooled data on. Um, from my recollection, each of the studies did involve a bolus dose. There were it was roughly about ten to fifteen cc's of loading dose for the studies on average, and so yeah, that is a limitation of the, the meta analysis. But the standard operating protocol for uh, regular epidural catheter initiation or induction is that you give a test dose and then you give a bolus dose and divide doses once your um, once your test dose is satisfied is negative, and uh, and that's pretty much. I mean, the ballpark is going to be about. 10 to 15 Cs of total local anesthetic solution, and that's kind of across the board for those studies, to the best of my recollection. Okay. So at least we're talking about the things in the same ballpark. All right. That's great. Uh, so, Jacqueline, why let's, – yes. let's move to you. Why do you think – that you know, Mike's made quite a case, I have to say, so I'm, I'm interested. I now. agree. Let's hear why you think a CSE is better. Perfect. So I am going to try to convince the listeners in a few minutes why CSE is clearly better. So I'm going to focus, and there are numerous factors you can look at at why CSE is better. So for um, succinct sake, I'm going to focus on three. One is a favorable cervical change profile, meaning that the cervix dilates possibly more rapidly during labor um, in a that benefits the mom and the baby. Secondly, there's also a favorable pain relief profile with CSEs which Mike sort of alluded to, and I will expand on more. And then lastly, and I think most importantly, is the reliability profile between the two catheter techniques with CSE being far more superior. Um, but let's go back to my, my first point, which is uh, faster cervical change. So there's mainly two studies that they're... Um, their outcome is to look at the progression of labor compare the two techniques and otherwise healthy nulliparous women. So uh, Lauren Sen and all did a study that looked at CSE versus traditional epidural. And in terms of cervical change per hour, they found the CSE group had a rate of two centimeters per hour of change versus one centimeter per hour of change. So slower in the epidural group, which may be unfavorable to some women. Um, lastly, Cynthia Wong and others looked at early CSE versus late epidural analgesia, which that late group received systemic medication first, then epidural analgesia after. 
And they also found that from the time you initiate your uh, anesthetic to 10 centimeters of dilation, the jathico group had about 300 or so minutes, and the late epidural group had almost 400 minutes. So uh, clinically and statistically significant difference in how quickly the survey changes, um, which, again, may be favorable to some women. Now, why is that? It's certainly not directly correlated to the technique and the rate of cervical change. No one is suggesting that. However, the suggested mechanism is that the analgesic given by way of the intrathecal dose, because it does have such a vigorous onset, that that changes the balance of maternal catecholamines, which again favors cervical change. Um, and that, again, might be favorable during the labor course. Uh, next, let's look at pain relief profile, which I think that, again, CSC has a much a clear winner in this category. So three studies looked at things like onset and pain scores during labor. First of all, Collis and others, which Mike will talk about later, um, they found that the CSE group had low pain scores, less than 5 out of 10 at 5 minutes compared to the epidural group, which took 20 minutes to lower their pain scores, which is, again, in the course of a woman coming in in extreme pain, maybe suboptimal. Lastly, they found the vast majority of the CSE patients were satisfied with pain relief at 20 minutes compared to about half of the epidural group, and relief of painful rectal pressure at 20 minutes was, again, much more vigorous in the CSE group than the epidural group. Um, Gambling also did a study in a private practice setting, which, again, I think demonstrates that CSE is not just for academia, um, that time to complete analgesia was 10 minutes in the CSE group versus, again, 20 minutes in the epidural group. So a slow, slower onset. And more women in the CSE group had a pain score of zero sometime in the first stage of labor compared to 30% in the epidural group. So overall, their conclusions were that the CSE group had better analgesic scores during the first stage. And lastly, Goodman also, again, found same similar results, that there were lower visual analog scores at 10 minutes and 30 minutes with the CSE group versus the epidural group. And hopefully this mechanism is very straightforward. When you inject low anesthetic or and or opioid in the intrathecal space, that's going to set up right away, as Mike had said. So that contributes to the lower pain scores initially. Um, it's also postulated that the dural hole made by the spinal needle allows for some spread of medication delivered in the epidural space to transverse that hole into the intrathecal space, allowing for a more complete analgesia profile, which may uh, confer pain relief throughout the labor process and not just right up front. Lastly, let's look at reliability, which I think if you're going to use the CSE technique, this is by far and away the most important reason to use it. Um, and my four studies I'm going, to, I'm going to discuss briefly all suggest that CSE has a lower failure rate intrapartum than epidural, and that's going to be the main theme. So if we look at EPIN and others, which looked at 3,500 patients, found the failure rate in the, in the CSE group to be 7.2% versus 13% in the epidural group. So about half as many catheters failed in the CSE group. Norris and others also found that the CSE group was less likely to produce a quote-unquote negative catheter. And they define a negative catheter as catheters that produce neither sensory nor an analgesic level. So basically didn't do anything. And that, again, that happened... Uh, less often in the CSE group, about half the time. And that t- at the time of C-section, um, there was a 4% failure rate in the CSE group versus 6% in the epidural group. 
which may not seem like a uh, a clinically significant number. However, those who practice especially high-risk obstetrics know that any catheter failure puts a mom and baby at risk. So the less catheter failures, the better. Uh, last two points, uh, Pan and others looked at 19,000 deliveries. And again, the same theme, a 10% failure rate in the CSC group versus a 40% rate in the epidural group. And lastly, Booth and others that just uh, produced and published their study in anesthesiology 2016 looked at this untested catheter theory. So uh, practitioners that don't necessarily like CSEs find that their main concern is that during that time when the spinal dose is the main anesthetic, so the first hour to two hours, you don't know anything about how the catheter functions, which I will admit is, um, is a true statement. However, this study looked to debunk that and prove that that was not really necessarily significant or true. So as we already alluded to, their overall failure rate was a 6.6 rate for the CSEs and 11.6 for the epidural group. However, they found amongst the catheters that lasted throughout labor, they lasted the same amount of time whether you place a CSE or an epidural, which is well over five hours. So the catheter isn't likely to fail in that hour, hour and a half when your intrathecal dose is the main anesthetic. Um, lastly, they found if a CSE was going to fail their one place for labor, it was most likely to fail right away in the first 30 to 40 minutes. And that's probably because of technical error, meaning that the technique was just not done correctly from the get-go. Lastly, I think most importantly, when they looked at when catheters needed to go, from the labor room to C-section, there was a 2% failure rate in the epidural group versus a 10%, I'm sorry, 2% in the CSE group versus 10% in the epidural group. So almost five times as much in the epidural group in terms of failure. And so the people that favor CSE, like myself, um, and the studies all suggest that because you're getting that definitive endpoint of CSF in the spinal needle, which is through the epidural needle, that that confirms two things. One, you're near the midline, so your catheter that is threaded and left behind is more likely to produce a bilateral symmetric level, um, and that the minimum your epidural needle is somewhere near the epidural space. Whereas, for example, anyone who's done an epidural and an obese um, parturient, for example, your loss of distance could be anywhere. Um, so that is one of the reasons why CSE is probably continuing to show that it's a more favorable catheter in terms of reliability purposes. All right. Jacqueline, that was pretty convincing, too. Mike. Thanks. Mike. I don't know. Now, you, you're going to have to. Good luck. You're, exactly. Mike, you're going to have to take a shot now. Um, why don't you tell us, uh, why do you disagree with these uh, really quite convincing points that Jacqueline has made? Oh, let me count the ways, Jed. Um, all right, so let's talk about the progress of labor. So Jacqueline, she brought up a couple good studies, but I don't think this issue is settled by any means. Norris et al. did a study in anesthesiology in 2001 where he looked at over 2,000 laboring women who were randomized to either get a CSE or an epidural. He found no difference in the mode of delivery or labor duration. There actually was a, a small difference in nail and nail outcomes. The CO2 pressure was slightly higher in the CSE group, but post hoc analysis showed that this was attributed to confining variables. The author's conclusion, after studying 2,000 patients, was that either technique can safely provide effective labor analgesia. 
So, you know, Jacqueline shows you a couple studies. I'll show you a couple more. Well, let's <laughs> talk about uh, pain relief profile. So the Collis study, I love the Collis study. So I was actually on call last night. We were doing a kidney transplant. And the surgeon's about my age, went to high school about the same time in the 90s. And she had these 90s music on Pandora playing. And I thought, you know what? I love the 90s. And I thought, what else is from the 90s? Oh, that's right. It's the Collis study. The Collis study is from the 90s. This study was done in 1995. And guess what? It did not use continuous epidural infusion. The physician just bolstered up mm-hmm. by hand and did not use a PCEA. So in my opinion, yeah, you showed some results in the first 20 minutes, but it's the epidural and the CSE are going to be in place more than 20 minutes. I don't think a study from 1995 is generalizable to our practice today. Let's talk about the gambling study. So, you know, there's liars, there's damn liars, and there's statistics. So, so Jacqueline says, oh, gambling found all these like interesting things. Well, guess what? Gambling had enough subjects to produce statistically significant results. But the clinical significance is, you know, I call dubious at best. So let's talk about the first stage of labor. Gambling found that if you're in the first stage of labor with a CSE, your pain's going to be 1.4. If you have an epidural, it's going to be 1.9. He had enough subjects to show this is a p-value of less than 0.05. Does it matter? No. Second stage, the, the uh, pain value for CSE was 1.7. For regular epidural, is 1.9. Does that make a difference? No. How about delivery? This was actually the same, 2.0 versus 2.0. So gambling is showing statistically different things, but they're not clinically significant. Okay, let's talk about the Goodman study. So at 30 minutes, there was no difference in the median analog PEG scales. And, there, and after 30 minutes, there was no difference in top-ups. So sure, you can get a little bit better analgesia at 10 minutes. You know, are you going to risk puncturing the dura for that? I don't know. Let's talk about the EPIN study. So the EPIN study, uh, according to Jacqueline, showed all these good things uh, in favor of the CSE. But when you look at the overall patient satisfaction rate, it was 98% amongst both techniques. Really? You're going to call the CSE remarkably better? I don't know. Norris et al. Let's talk about that study. So if you have a negative catheter to to uh, the number needed to treat to avoid one negative catheter is approximately 100 patients. You're going to puncture 100 duras to save one negative catheter. And let's talk about the failure at cesarean delivery. The number needed to treat is 50. You're going to puncture 50 duras unnecessarily, necessarily, depends how you look at it, to prevent one failure at cesarean delivery. Let's talk about the PAN study. 19,000 patients, good power. Pan also found that 98.8% of patients ultimately had adequate analgesia. So I don't know if I see a real advantage here, the CSEs. All right, let's talk about the Booth article. So I have a, a bigger problem with the Booth article than the rest of the articles. So this study was only at one center, and it was retrospective. This was done in a teaching hospital with novice operators. Now, Jackie's going to tell you that these novice <laughs> operators are always supervised, but guess what? The supervisor is just watching the, the, uh, the resident put the epidural in. The, the, the supervisor cannot feel what the, the resident is feeling. And as we all know, loss of resistance is a feel technique. So I can only wonder if the reason why 
the Booth article had such good results with the CSEs was that the that the learners had an objective confirmation that they were in the epidural space with the TUI, which was done by puncturing the dura after you're in the epidural space with the TUI. Experienced operators who know what the loss of resistance feels like, I will argue that if you're going to do this study and replicate it with attendings only, that you're going to find much different results. I would I would say that the CSE and epidural is going to be a lot closer. All right, um, that's all I got. All right, so again, Mike, that was pretty convincing, Jacqueline. Right. So he he did I, he, he went right at you. What he uh, sure did. I'm glad. Good. Let's hear let's, what you've got to say. Great. I think let's talk about 1995. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was in grade school, and in fact, the only so his point was that their uh, mode of anesthetic local anesthetic delivery to the patients is not quote-unquote contemporary. And naturally, the way they bolus the catheters in this 1995 study, when I was in grade school, was the physicians or whoever went around and hand bolus, which we actually know provides better spread in the epidural space on numerous um, cadaver and real-life human studies. And in fact, the only reason most people practice this continuous infusion, which I think Mike is trying to say is contemporary, is because that's the first pumps that were made. So people just switched to it without really investigating was that better. And if you look at now, I would argue that even more contemporary anesthesia providers are actually providing intermittent bolusing, hence program intermittent bolus, which if you look at that head-to-head with continuous infusion offers a slight advantage but not much better. So maybe his interpretation of Collis is not contemporary but the way we're doing it now with program intermittent bolus is not really that far off from what they did. So that's Fair. my argument to that okay. there. Um, let's look at other things he um, uh, he suggested. So let's talk about the Booth article, which um, was looking at catheter reliability, like I suggested. So this article was actually included in the keynote speak at the SOAP conference thus, just this year, which these articles are highly vetted to look at what's the most important information we have right now about the practice of obstetric anesthesia. So I think that just shows sort of the importance contributions contribute to our practice. Um, secondly, yes, I agree with him that um, the operators per se were supervised residents. However, when they broke it down by resident class, the failure rate between CA1, CA2, CA3s, yada, yada, was roughly the same. So it probably was the supervision by obstetric and anesthesia-trained people that contributed to the overall catheter success. But I actually would suggest that, especially in high-risk populations or even in non-high-risk populations, that it's probably the experience of obstetric anesthesia providers that ultimately contributes to patient safety, um, which is, like the, again, I think the gist of um, catheter reliability studies. Um, secondly, the most important thing I want to um, to discuss at the end here is this discussion of fetal bradycardia. Now, have I experienced seeing fetal bradycardia with CSEs? Absolutely. Um, and I would not say that that is not something that happens. However, when we look at the fetal bradycardia discussion, the study that um, Mike brought up, Mardrasov, so he looked at the risk of C-section due to these fetal bradycardia episodes is not the same whether you use an intrathecal dose or not. 
Um, low APGAR scores, again, not, not the same whether you're using intrathecal dose or not. Instrument advantage deliveries, no difference. So um, does non-restricting fetal heart tones occur because of intrathecal doses? Certainly, but it's probably dose and type dependent in otherwise healthy pregnancies, it doesn't increase the risk of emergency section or change fetal outcomes. So in terms of its long-term clinical significance, no one really knows that. Lastly, um, Hatler looked at a study and also suggested or found that there was a relative risk of 1.3 and non-reassuring fetal heart tones when you use CSE technique. Great. However, what did he also mention? The overall definition of non-reassuring fetal heart tones is heterogeneous. You won't open a book and find one set of criteria. Anyone that's done enough LB has been on the floor and looked at a non-reassuring ship for hours on end, while the other patient might have one D cell and she's going to the OR. So that's not defined clearly amongst even the obstetric literature itself. Um, secondly, the time frame that non-reassuring fetal heart tones can be detected, very nebulous. It could be five minutes, it could be 30 minutes, it can be an hour after. So there isn't really any time frame to associate a non-reassuring fetal heart tone strip in association to a CSE. Lastly, as we sort of touched on with these retrospective studies, um, that the dosing of CSEs and epidurals are so variable, very heterogeneous. So that we can't really pinpoint what is exactly that will make a person have a non-reassuring fetal heart tone. Um, and lastly, you really have to define for yourself as a obstetric anesthesia provider, are you, what's the risk-benefit ratio? Are you going to put in a more reliable catheter technique um, and maybe risk a little bit of a potential area of non-reassuring fetal heart tones for the overall catheter reliability and have your mom be happy in five, ten minutes um, it depends. I think you have to make that decision is highly tied to many things that go on their labor course and not necessarily just their anesthetic per se. So it's hard to pinpoint satisfaction on the two techniques because if their baby comes out happy and healthy, that's probably the best endpoint anyway. Okay. We lost you for a sec there, Jackie, but uh, okay. But I think we got the bulk of, of what you were saying. Great. Do you want to just um, summarize kind of the last minute of what you said one more time? Yeah, I think the last summary is risk-benefit ratio, which is anything in, me anything in medicine. Um, are you going to puncture the dura, give a really great analgesic dose up front to an otherwise healthy woman with a great reassuring uh, fetal heart tone strip to make her comfortable in two minutes versus 20 minutes? I think you should go that way. Um, and I think you also consider the reliability profile of a CSE catheter versus an epidural catheter which sure, in an otherwise experienced hands, may be just as beneficial. But anyone who's supervising um, catheters, I think, should definitely consider going with a CSE technique. Okay. Very convincing. Now, it, let me ask you guys this. Is there uh, something called a DPE? Yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Jed. So I consider myself a pretty reasonable guy and also sometimes a gentleman. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer uh, Dr. Galvin a, a good faith compromise. Let's talk about the dural puncture epidural. So a dural puncture epidural is where you access the epidural space with the TUI, and then you put the spinal needle through the TUI, you puncture the dura. But instead of injecting medicine, you just leave that puncture hole there, and you're going to use that puncture hole throughout labor as a conduit 
of for local Aztec to go from the epidural space into the intrathecal space. And so someone smart dis- discovered that this could actually work. Cadaver studies shown that this could actually work. And finally, Chow et al. in 2007, and published a, a study that was published in 2017, actually did a head-to-head-to-head randomized control trial comparing dural puncture epidurals to CSEs to regular epidurals. And their hypothesis was that the dural puncture epidural would have intermediate effects, like you'd get the good things of the epidural and the good things of the CSE and leave out the bad things of both. And that's kind of exactly what happened. And so when you look, when you compare the onset of analgesia, of course the CSE was quicker, but there was no difference between the epidural and the, te- and the dural puncture epidural. Now, when you compare the block quality, the overall block quality between the dural puncture epidural and the, and the regular epidural, you're going to have um, a better d- block quality with decreased one-sidedness with the dural puncture epidural, and you're going to have fewer side effects when you compare it to this combined spinal epidural. So I'll tell you what. Like I said before, I am a reasonable person. <laughs> Since June, my institution, Skyway Michael Center Temple, has done uh, dural puncture epidurals as the preferred primary analgesic technique, labor analgesic technique. So we are puncturing the dura. We are gaining the benefits of the long-term catheter survival, and we are avoiding the fetal bradycardia, the uterine hypertonus, and all the other bad things that come with the CSEs. All right, very interesting. Jacqueline, what do you think about the DPE? So I think it is exactly what Mike suggested, a good compromise. I do use it in certain situations. One, if I think there is a pre-existing condition with the fetus, like there's already a Category 2 tracing, and I don't want to alter anything about the mom's human dynamics or whatnot to offset any non-restricting fetal heart tones in the baby, yes, I'll use it. And then I'll slowly dose the epidural catheter. I'd also consider using it if, for example, I had a mom with a hideous airway who I'd never want to intubate in my life, but I want to find out how the catheter portion works in this particular second, I would also consider using it in that situation. I do still feel that if you have a mom in 10 out of 10 pain, otherwise healthy with a reassuring fetus, there should be no reason why you can't give her immediate onset pain relief instead of doing these other painful titration techniques. Um, but I do think it's a useful tool to have um, in your labor analgesic armamentum, certainly. All right. Now, Jacqueline, let me go back and ask you, you about when you mentioned the difficult airway. So am I, am I understanding that the idea here would be if you were worried that this woman is someone you really wouldn't want to try to intubate, you sure. might do this technique because then you would know if your catheter worked. And so if you had to, if it didn't work, you would put another epidural in. Correct. Okay. Yes, that's As correct. As opposed to ending up in the operating room and finding out then that it doesn't work and you don't have time to put a new one in. That, that's correct, yes. Okay. Although I don't think anyone's ever looked at the catheter function if you had to go to the OR within like 30 minutes to an hour after you place a CSE. So I think that might be an area... Um, of interest for further study to look at what is a rate of technical failure in those scenarios. Okay. Now, let, I guess for, for either one of you, when you do this DPE technique, in theory, since you're still puncturing the dura, do you worry about dural puncture headache? Absolutely. It's still the same risk. Okay. So the same risk as a CSE, but 
potentially more so than just a pure epidural. Correct. Yeah. If you do an epidural and you don't puncture the dura at all, there's virtually no risk of a postural puncture headache. Uh, if you puncture the dura knowingly, even if it's with a 27 gauge needle, you're going to have an incidence of postural puncture headache. It's going to be close to zero, but it's not going to be zero. All right. And yet, Mike, for you guys, you've gone to doing this um, because you think this is uh, it's a small enough risk. You still go for the benefits here. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, you know, I was pretty stubborn <laughs> at first, but you know, when I really looked at the evidence from an objective point of view, I could kind of move the needle a little bit and puncture the dura with a small needle to gain the effects of decreased one side blocks, increased catheter survival, and I don't get my annoying side effects of fetal bradycardia, pruritus. And the fact that the patient will get awesome analgesia for two hours and I can't replicate it afterwards. So, yes, so I get the best of both worlds, in my opinion, with the DPE. Great. All right. So let me ask you both a few questions. First of all, some people may be wondering, we've talked a lot about the advantage of the, both the CSE and the DPE in terms of some of that now epidural solution leaks into the intrathecal space. Mm-hmm. And so some people may be wondering, gee, if that's what's good, why not just put the catheter in the intrathecal space? So, you know, why is that something that, that you ever do? Do you ever put an intrathecal catheter in? Uh, and is there any thought, uh, any advantage to that, any thought that, that that might ever be a common technique? I, um, if you don't mind, Mike, if I um, take oh, a go ahead. Go ahead. first. So um, I would say we have a preponderance of patients with BMIs in the 50s, 40s, 60s even, and um, uh, I think almost never do we purposely do an intrathecal catheter. If it happens on accident, fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it's uh, a purposeful technique, I think you have to take into consideration the postural puncture headache rate, which after you puncture the 2E is almost 50, 60%. So that's a lot of maternal morbidity. Secondly, you have to have a staff particularly the CJIS staff that understands how those catheters work because the the forgivingness of the intrathecal space is very low. So if you inadvertently dose that catheter like an epidural because you forgot to tell your colleague, that's, again, maternal and fetal morbidity right there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then lastly, most people only thread it in maybe three to five centimeters, and depending on your catheters, if they're multi-orifice or not, your bolus and our maintenance regimen, the failure rate is is pretty high for um, catheters that have been threaded after an unintended dural puncture. So I think, so we do it. So if I have a on accident, I'll thread it, but then we go through a whole algorithm of how are we going to manage breakthrough pain? How are we going to manage if we go to the OR? How are we going to manage if we have to replace? So I think you have to have all that set up to support that practice uh, within your anesthesia group. That makes a lot of sense. Mike, what do you think? Uh, let me add a couple points. Excellent discussion by Dr. Galvin. So uh, historically, a couple decades ago, they were using microcatheters to do continuous spinal analgesia. And they found that people were getting permanent neurological deficits from this practice. And it was unclear whether it was due to the microcatheters itself or whether it's due to the 5% lidocaine, a very strong solution that was administered through these catheters. Most people think it was due to the concentrated lidocaine, but the catheters got blamed, and so no more microcatheters for uh, continuous spinals. Now, the other thing is that 
when you get a dural puncture, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it is an off-label use to thread that epidural catheter into the intrathecal space. It's off-label because no one has spent the money to prove that these epidural catheters we use all the time for the epidural space are safe for the intrathecal space. If I were to give $10 million of my own money and give it to some center to try to prove it was safe, I could probably prove it, but no one has done it yet. So when you're doing this technique, you have to understand you're doing an off-label technique, which is permissible, but you're, you're setting yourself up potentially for some problems. Now, I can tell you that when I was a resident at Hopkins, we were trained to sometimes, on occasion, intentionally puncture the dura so that we had continuous access to the intrathecal space so we could dose up a spinal real quick for patients who had difficult airways. Now, Dr. Galvin is right. There are some There is some evidence out there that shows that you don't know where these catheters are going. Sometimes they go down a spinal nerve root or one side or the other, and you're not going to get as good analgesia as you like. So I think that threading catheters in the intrathecal space is far from settled as to what the mm-hmm. best thing is to do. Okay, great. Agreed. That's a really good discussion, guys. Thank you. So I think it would be interesting, Mike, Jacqueline said that she sometimes does do uh, either a, a um, an epidural alone or a DPE, and she gave some examples, for example, when she, there's a particularly unreassuring airway. How about you? Do you ever do a CSE? Uh, you've told us you've gone to DPEs, but do you ever do a CSE, and if so, when? That's a great question. So I will do a CSE when I am convinced, based on the situation, that it's more likely than not that the patient will deliver during the time the spinal dose will be in effect. So if I have a rapidly progressing multip coming into my unit, like a G5P4 who's six centimeters dilated, who's going to deliver the next two hours, I, absolutely, I'll do a CSE because more likely than not, the primary aesthetic is going to be that spinal dose that I give. And if I'm wrong, I have the epidural as a backup. But barring that circumstance, I don't like doing CSEs because I don't like giving the patient something that they're going to like for the first two hours, and then they're going to miss the rest of the hours. Okay, fair enough. And Jacqueline, are there any additional yes. times where you might do um, a regular epidural or DPE as opposed to a CSE, or did you cover the ones? That I would like to say I, um, since I completed my anesthesia fellowship, I really read this at the start. I never do a straight epidural ever. Okay. The only time is if, um, as we discussed, if a, for example, myself or a resident unintended dural puncture, and for whatever reason the threaded intrathecal catheter failures, and we have to go to replace then I'll do a straight epidural. Outside of that situation, I almost never do a straight epidural. But for example, if you say you had a mom with also a cardiac problem and you wanted a slower anesthetic, you could do this dural puncture epidural, a very low dose, uh, intrathecal dose, and then slowly bolus your catheter. So there are ways to manipulate the you know basic of the CSE dosing to get the endpoints that you want. Um, so for that reason, I almost never do an epidural. And to kind of fairly briefly respond to Mike's point, um, is that sure, some women get some itching and that's certainly uncomfortable for them. But even my residents, I think are, when you have a a woman come in 10 on 10 pain, you give that intrathecal dose, they're like a completely different person. They're completely relieved of their pain. 
they're happy, they're smiling. And I think you can't beat that satisfaction when you are able to provide that kind of substantial um, anesthetic. And secondly, I think really good expectation setting, and we certainly say up front that you won't feel this for this type of pain relief for the rest of your labor, but here is what you are going to feel, really helps set the course for them and so that you aren't getting that annoying call afterwards to say the patient's unhappy. So I think you can do some expectation settings to let the patient know what's going to be going on. Great. Thank you. So I think people would love to hear, and I wonder if each of you would just take a minute and tell us what exactly do you do? And obviously it depends on the patient and the circumstance, but your usual typical uh, approach. So Mike, when you do an epidural or a DPE, how, you know, what are you doing in terms of how much are you putting in and what are you putting in uh, on your typical patient? And Jacqueline, when you do a CSE, how much are you, what and how much are you putting in the intrathecal mm-hmm. space? And then what are you doing, if anything, in terms of bolusing up the epidural afterwards? Sure. So for the, the DPE technique, what I'll do is I'll get loss of resistance in the epidural space. I will put a, a spinal needle through the TUI. I will get a uh, I'll get a confirmation of CSF. I will not inject anything through the spinal needle. I'll pull it out after I see backflow CSF. And then I will thread an epidural catheter. And then I will withdraw the TUI over the epidural catheter. And then I will do a test dose of lidocaine 1.5% with 1 to 200,000 epinephrine, 3 cc's. I'll wait three minutes to make sure I don't have a profound motor block or uh, intense tachycardia. And then what I'll do is I will bolus the catheter with ropivacaine, 0.2%, 8 cc's, and fentanyl, 100 mics, in divided doses. So I make a solution, a 10 cc solution of 8 cc's of 0.2% ropivacaine and 100 mics of fentanyl. And then when you say divided doses, you give how much at a time? Five at a time. So two doses, how long do you wait in between? i wait like a minute or two. And you're looking for hypotension? Look at... I'm looking for local aesthetic toxicity. Okay. Looking so. And as long as you don't see that, and when and by when you say that, you're looking for central nervous system depression. Correct. Perioral numbness, uh, uh, ringing in the ears, things that would think make me think that the dose that I gave was intravascular instead of epidural. And as long as you don't see that, you give the second five. That's correct. Great. All right. Now, Jacqueline, how about you? What's your typical technique? Great. So after loss of resistance, tuning the epidural space, we do a 27-gauge needle through the epidural needle, puncture the dura. We give 2 milligrams of half percent bupivacaine, so that's 0.4 mLs, and 15 mics of fentanyl. That's our standard intrathecal dose that our pharmacy is nice enough to dispense in aliquots, so there's no deciding on when I have to draw it up and where is it coming from. The pharmacy already gives it to us like that, which is very nice. Okay. Um, then once that's in, we do our standard test dose. Again, because we're not expecting from the labor analgesic dose a high motor block. So we still want to make sure the catheter itself is not intrathecal. So we give our test dose. Once that's proven to be negative, then we're doing program intermittent bolus. So we set up our pump. Um, with a 0.125% UB with two mics per cc of fentanyl. And then for now, our regimen is 6 mLs every hour um, with a PCA function as well. But we're still working on adjusting what's the optimal program intermittent um, bolus and dosing. Great. And when does that first bolus happen? So let's, I, you know, that the is, patient. Yeah, go ahead. That's a great question because right now no, no one really knows 
what is the best bolus interval, what's the best volume per interval, what's the best concentration. But suffice it to say, ours defaults at an hour because many of the studies suggested um, that giving your whole bolus over um, at, at hour intervals is relatively okay to do. So ours started an hour, but for example, if it took us forever to thread and then other things happen, we had to set up the pump, sometimes I'll, I'll adjust that rate to give it, um, to have the first bolus be sooner. So maybe in half hour, 45 minutes, depending on, you know, resident learning curves and things like that. But okay. typically an hour, sorry, okay. is a short so, answer. Great. So now tell me, I'm reaching back here to my days uh, as a resident on OB, but I seem to remember, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember that there was always a cautionary statement that if you did a CSE and then for some reason shortly thereafter you had to do a crash C-section, sure. uh, that there could be some danger in bolusing that epidural immediately after having given the intrathecal dose in terms of a higher risk of a high spinal. Is that true? Um. I would say in my experience, not necessarily uh, for a number of reasons. One, that theoretically, you've given just a small intrathecal low-volume dose mm-hmm. um, through a small 27-gauge hole. Um, and so if you're giving your large, you know, much larger concentrated volume in the epidural space, it really should not, um, in general, cause things like high spinal and stuff like that. And there was actually one study I'm aware of that looked at this concept. So they gave their small intrathecal dose. They gave some other solution in the epidural space to see if that made the level rise up too high or cause other maternal hemodynamic consequences. And they actually found that was not true, and or they found that that was not the case. And that tip, that technique in general is called epidural volume extension, where you get something in the epidural space shortly after an intrathecal dose mm-hmm. with the goal of raising your block. But for an analgesic block, it really shouldn't have that much effect. And the, the cost-benefit of giving your uh, concentrated local really quickly to get the patient in the operating room is much more of a pressing concern at the time mm-hmm. than worrying about a high block. Okay, great. Now, and the final thing is, if you were worried about the puritis, uh, you know, maybe you have someone who has had a history of it in the past, and you could give in the intrathecal dose just the local, just the bupivacaine? You could. Absolutely. Yeah, that's always an option. Okay. Um, but your typical dose, it sounds like that even comes pre-mixed from pharmacy, are those yeah, two cc's is, of half I percent. highly recommend, exactly, because it minimizes, yeah. I'm sorry, I mean to cut you off, I'm sorry. No, no, um, just the two cc's of half percent plus the 50 mics of fentanyl. It's actually two milligrams, so it's only the whole intrathecal dose is only 0.8. Mls, oh, so got, a very small it. amount. Sorry, that's important. Yeah. Okay, so just just yes. two milligrams. Two milligrams of 0.5 percent bup, which is 0.4 mls. Got it. Okay. Plus our three plus our. Oh, I think we lost. Jack. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. She's back. Okay. So, back. so you were saying we you give the two milligrams of the half percent bupivacaine plus how much fentanyl? 15 mics, 15 which is a mics, standard middle-of-the-road dose. Yep. So one five, that's one five mics. Okay. One five mics. Great. All right. So I want to give each of you, if you have anything else that you didn't get in that you thought of, a chance to add it in now before we wrap up. But Mike, anything mm-hmm. uh, on your mind? I think I did an excellent job. I have nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'd have to agree. And Jacqueline, how about you? I would just like to add, I think epidural technique 
is pretty archaic and is generally on the way out, at least in the obstetric anesthesia world. I think if you're going to puncture the dura and there's no, again, no really great reason to not give your analgesic, I think you should give it. And then I agree that dural puncture epidural is a great technique if you're worried about maternal or fetal consequences and you want to take your time and do a slightly slower technique, but the great advantage of the catheter survival data. Great. I think you both presented your case incredibly well. If I still did OB, I would be torn as to which of you I should uh, follow. I, I'm not going to come down and judge, but I will say to our listeners, uh, let us know. Write in and let us know. Do you do uh, only CSEs? Do you do uh, only epidurals? Do you do the DPE technique? Uh, did you get swayed? Did Mike convince you to move away from CSEs? Did Jacqueline convince you to only do CSEs? We'd love to hear uh, what you think and what your practice is. So, uh, Feel free to uh, post comments on the website at ACRAC.com uh, or email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com and uh, let us know, and I'll share them with, with Mike and Jacqueline, and we can always uh, respond uh, to anything that you have to say. So, uh, Jacqueline and Mike, thank you so much. This was fast, uh, fantastic and fascinating, and I look forward to uh, doing something similar again soon. Thank you so much, Jay. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. All right. That was fantastic. I'm so glad we got a chance to do that. I hope we get to do more debates in the future. Listeners, let us know what you think. As I said, we really would love to hear your uh, your take on this. And, uh, hey, let us know if you think one or the other of these guys won. Let me know who was the winner. All right. Remember, website, ACRAC.com, ACCRAC.com. You can join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner. You can get access to all the episodes. You can leave comments. It is fantastic. If you are a fan of the show and you haven't already, please consider going to iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating and uh, really helps others find the show. Also, if you uh, appreciate what we're doing and have any uh, interest in potentially trying to support what we do, you can go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash ACRAC, patreon.com slash ACRAC, where you can support us with even just a dollar or two. Makes a big difference and helps a lot. So consider doing that. If you don't mind it, we would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. For Dr. Jacqueline Galvin and Dr. Mike Hofkamp, and of course the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.